I, I want to read in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 17. Uh, and so to begin, if you'll stand out of reverence for God's word as we read this account from Matthew and the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 17. Hear, <clears throat> hear what Matthew says. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerubbabel, Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nation, Nation fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, and after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheatil, Sheatil fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Elikim, Elikim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations and from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. Heavenly Father, as we consider this idea of who is this king, as we reflect on the coming of Christ nearly 2,000 years ago and the fact that he is coming again, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might honor you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you for our King who has come. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, I stumbled a couple times through those names, but that wasn't that bad. Uh, I, I practiced that. Uh, you know, the title of this morning's message is, Who is this King? Who is this King? And as I'm sure you are aware, this, this Friday is Christmas. And for us as believers, amen, it is a, a time we reflect on the birth of Jesus. And I just want to mention that it is good to celebrate significant aspects of faith. Jesus himself, being a Jew, honored the Jewish holidays and reflected on who God is and what he has done. So, for us as Christians, first and foremost, Christmas is a time to reflect on who God is and what He has done. It's a time to reflect on who God is and what He has done. And I know, as you are well aware, it's easy to get distracted. 
during this season. It's easy to make Jesus the sideshow and ourselves the main focus. But what I hope to do this morning, I want to remind you this morning, that what we reflect on at Christmas, what we remember, what our hope is grounded in, is the fact that our King has come. Jesus was the King the wise men sought in Matthew 2, 2, where they declared, where is He who has been born the King of the Jews? For we saw His star at the rising and have come to worship Him. You see, Christmas is the grand story of God coming down in flesh. John 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we could not get to our King, our King came to us, born as a baby in Bethlehem. And what a King He is. You know, this morning I wanted to focus on this genealogy and oftentimes, let's be honest, we we can skip over some of the genealogies. It's a lot of names, a lot of them we don't know. I've been guilty of it, especially in the Old Testament when I see the long list and I say, you know, we're just going to jump to the end of that. I get it. A lot of people had a lot of kids. But I want to focus on this particular genealogy in the book of Matthew because within this genealogy there are hidden these these incredible truths that teach us who this king is. You know, this genealogy in the book of Matthew sets the stage for everything Matthew is going to write about in the remainder of his gospel. Because if Matthew doesn't lay down this genealogy, if the Jews that he he is writing to, if they don't believe it, then nothing that he is going to say in the remainder of the gospel will make sense to them. So, So let me give you a little bit of background on the book of Matthew. So obviously, Matthew wrote this gospel after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And though the gospels are all similar... Right? Specifically, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each author has a purpose for writing, and each author has an audience in mind. For example, Luke's gospel is a little different than Matthew's gospel because Luke is primarily writing to Gentiles. He's recounting who this amazing king is to Gentiles, but Matthew, as he writes his gospel, he is primarily focused on declaring the Messiah and the kingship of Jesus to the Jews. Matthew wanted them to know that this Jesus, this Messiah, he fits all the necessary requirements to be the promised Messiah. He fits the requirements to be the king. Therefore, this genealogy in the beginning of Matthew is massively significant because Matthew knew that Jesus' lineage mattered. It mattered to the Jews. You see, lineage mattered in the Jewish culture in general. Let Let me give you a few examples. See, the qualifications to even be a priest depended on your lineage. You had to be a descendant of Levi. And in Ezra 2, verses 61 and 62, we actually have an account of the Israelites returning from their exile in Babylon. And some who were acting as priests were no longer considered priests because they couldn't prove their lineage. Listen to what it says in Ezra 2, 61 and 62. It says, and from the descendants of the priests... 
the descendants of Hobiah, the descendants of Hakaz, the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Giladite, who bore their name. Listen, it says, these searched for their entries in in the genealogical records, but they could not be found, so they were disqualified from the priesthood. But lineage also affected your property. Right? We see that with Ruth and Boaz. Remember that story? In Ruth 3 and 4, we see that the lineage, right, it affected who owned the land, who had the property. But you also needed to know your lineage for the census. You had to register based on your family and the tribe that you were from. You see this in Luke 2, 4 when Jesus is born because Joseph was traveling to register in his appropriate place based on his lineage. Obviously, lineage mattered in terms of kingship and being the Messiah because of what was promised to David. In 2 Samuel 7, 12, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So to be a king in Israel, to be the Messiah, you had to be from the lineage of David. Lineage mattered to the Jews And Matthew knew that for the Jews to even consider the claim that this Jesus who was born in Bethlehem was the Messiah and the King, Matthew had to recount the lineage of Jesus. And if he does not do this at the beginning of the book, then nothing else that he will say will matter. You see, a theme of the book of Matthew is the kingship of Jesus. And Matthew had to establish that Jesus... Jesus had the lineage to be king. And the point of Matthew is not to bore you with useless history, but rather to declare the vital truth, to reveal the authority of Christ as king. He is revealing the kingship of our Savior. And so what I want to show you this morning, as we consider this baby born of Mary, as we trace his lineage, we learn who this king is. We learn things about him. And so I want to encourage you, again, as we reflect on Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the king of the world, I want us to reflect on on what we know about this king from his lineage. So here's the first thing that I want you to see. Jesus is the legal king. Jesus is the legal king. You know... I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I hope you love the Bible too. But one of the reasons I love the Bible is because I don't care how seasoned of a reader you are. I went to Bible college. I, I have a master's in theology. Like, like I have those degrees. I don't, but I don't care how seasoned you are. There are people who are far beyond me. Every time you come to the scripture, because our God is so creative, you learn more about him. And you see more of the complexity, yet the beauty of his word every time you read it. And I say all that to say this. I've preached this text before. I've actually preached the lineage of Jesus, not here, from Matthew 1, though, multiple times in my ministry. But as I was studying it to teach it again, I saw something and I learned something that I never knew before and it changed my entire paradigm for approaching this lineage. You see, in this passage, in Matthew 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, there is a pattern in the genealogy. You probably see the pattern. This person fathered this person. This person fathered this person. This person fathered this person. That's the pattern of genealogies. But in Matthew's account, there are disruptions to the pattern. And every disruption to the pattern is intentional by Matthew because he wants you to focus on something very particular about this spot in his lineage. Charles Quarles in his commentary that's edited, edited by Kossenberger, he notes on Matthew this, he says, these verses record the genealogy of Jesus and, father, and follow a simple structure. Father plus son. Several additional phrases disrupt this normal structure. And these disruptions are likely of special importance to Matthew for various reasons. And I think the reason that they are important to Matthew is because each of these disruptions describe and declare to us who this king is. And every identifier we have comes from a disruption in the pattern. So our first point of emphasis is that Jesus is the legal king and it comes from a disruption that takes place in verse 11. It says, And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So do you see how it breaks from the normal structure and Matthew adds in at the time of exile to Babylon? That is a disruption in the pattern. And so Matthew wants you to pause here. He wants you to think for a minute about this. And as we think about it, we see this beautiful truth that Jesus is the legal king. He has the legal right to be king. And let me show you how, how we get this. You see, it's very important to note that in the book of Matthew, in this genealogy, Matthew is tracing Jesus's legal line. He is not tracing his bloodline. And we see that clearly in verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This isn't tracing it through Mary. Mary is the blood parent of Jesus. Joseph is the legal parent, but he's not the blood parent. Because remember that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, not Joseph. And so Matthew is tracing Jesus' legal line. Because Jesus, Joseph was not Jesus' blood father, but, this is important, Joseph was Jesus' legal father. And so Jesus had all the legal rights of being Joseph's son, including claiming his lineage. And Joseph was a legal descendant of King David. But here is why this is more significant, and here is why that verse 11 is so important, and why Matthew draws our attention to it. Specifically, do you see that name Jeconiah there in verse 11? Jeconiah is called in Scripture Jeconiah. He's also called Kaniah, and he's even called Jehoiachin. But, but this person, Jeho Jeconiah, he was a king in Israel. And Scripture tells us that he was a wicked king. See, 2 Kings 24, verses 8 through 9, Jeconiah was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, daughter of 
Elnathan, and she was from Jerusalem. And listen to this in verse 9, 2 Kings 24, 9. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father had done. See, this king was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, you might be thinking, well, aren't, weren't all the kings somewhat wicked? Well, yes, but this is important because this king was so wicked that Jeremiah brings him back up and tells us what happened to Jeconiah as a result of his wickedness as the king. And in Jeremiah 22, verse 28 through 30, we read, Is this man, Keniah, a despised, shattered pot? A jar no one wants. Why are he and his descendants hurled out and cast into the land they have not known? Earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Listen to what the Lord says to this wicked king. Record this man as childless. A man who will not be successful in his lifetime. Listen, none of his descendants will succeed in sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. That is a very important statement. Because God tells Jeconiah that you are cursed and cut off and so none of your blood children will sit on the throne of David and rule again in Judah. So, if Jesus is from the bloodline of this man, he would have been disqualified from being king. But he could still be from the legal line of this man, but not the bloodline. You see, this, this is what makes God's plan so amazing. We see that Jesus has a legal right to be king because of his father, and he is not cut off because of the curse that was given to Jeconiah. And what we see in Luke chapter 3 is that not only does he have the legal right to be king, Jesus has the blood right to be king. Because Luke 3 traces the lineage of Jesus from his mother Mary to David all the way back to the son of Adam. That's why some people, or to Adam, that's why some people look at it and say, well, there's discrepancies here. No, no, no. God's telling two different stories. In Matthew, God is telling us that Jesus has the legal right to be king through his father, his earthly father, Joseph. And in Luke chapter 3, he's telling us that Jesus has the blood right to be king coming from his mother, Mary, who was also a descendant of King David. Now you might be thinking, wow, that was a lot to talk about. Well, let me try to pull it together for you. I say, I don't know about you, I love this stuff. This is the stuff that just kind of gets me going. Here's why I tell you all of this. What God is communicating, what Matthew wants us to see by this disruption in the text is that Jesus still has the right to be king. God so carefully orchestrated this plan that Jesus has the right by law and by blood to be king, to be the Messiah that the people were longing for. Jesus is that king. Now let me, let me just pause for a moment. Because we got to find some hope in that. This reminds us, church, that God's plans are not our plans. I don't care how cunning you think you are. I don't think any one of us could have thought this up. God's plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. But what this encourages me with, and it, and, it, and it grounds my soul, even in the midst of tumultuous times, is that God always accomplishes what he wills. Always accomplishes what he wills. Nothing happens outside of the sovereign 
plan of our great God. And so in that church, we rest. We rest in the fact that God's ways are not our ways. We rest in the fact that his plans are not our plans. And we also rest in the fact that everything our God determines will come to fruition. We learn from the first disruption that Jesus is the legal king. But here's the second thing we learn, the second point I want you to notice in answering this question of who is this king? Jesus is not only the legal king, Jesus is the covenantal king. Jesus is the covenantal king. There are two people mentioned in the lineage of Jesus to whom God made specific covenants, revealing a certain king to come. And Matthew intentionally puts disruptions in the flow of the pattern to make sure we see it. You see, the first thing we see is there in chapter 1, verse 2. It says this, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. That's a disruption in the text. And by Matthew including the brothers, he forces us to consider first the 12 tribes of Israel and the promise that was made to their great-grandfather Abraham. Because then in verse 6, we see the other disruption that points us to the covenantal king. It says, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Now notice how David is given the title king and no one else is even though there were other kings in the lineage this is a disruption in the text and Matthew wants us to see something to think about something you see with both of these men Abraham and David God made a covenant see first we have Abraham we have the account in Scripture of Abram who would soon become Abraham beginning in just Genesis 11. And God chose Abraham and covenanted with him. And this entire covenant, hear me, hinged on an undeserved inheritance through a son. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abram to go and he promises blessings for him and blessings for all humanity. And in Genesis 12, verse 4, Abram went. He followed the Lord's call. And then in Genesis 13, verse 4, God promises Abram land and offering, or an offspring. But then in chapter 15, we see the incredible covenant of God enacted with Abram. And let me read it to you. It's a little lengthy, but it's Genesis 15, beginning in verse 5, reading through verse 18. And this is God, and it says that God, he, he took him outside and said to Abram, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it, it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. 
Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram. And suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However... I will judge the nation they served, and afterwards they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now listen to this. When the sun had set and it was dark, A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. And this covenant made with Abram hinged on a promised son. But then you have David. And God covenants with David as well in 2 Samuel 7. And again, the covenant hinges on a descendant. It hinges on a son. Listen to what's written in 2 Samuel 1, or 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 13. It says, When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, this is King David. It says, The king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tents of curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling in all my journeys with all the Israelites. Have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be the ruler over my Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. And I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evil doers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you from your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build me a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This covenant, it hinges on a son. You see, the reason I read these to you is because 
Matthew wants us to see something here. Matthew wants us to understand that Christ is the true offspring of Abraham that brings the nations into the promised inheritance, who brings a people before God in covenantal relationship, that Christ is the heir of David, this true king who permanently established God's kingdom through the finished work on the cross. Christ is the covenantal king. Now let me pause for a moment because this too merits some reflection. Look with me at verse 17. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. So if my math is right, that's 42 generations of people. The reason I highlight this, the reason I want to reflect on this is because this is a reminder to us that though it may not be on our time, though it may not be how we expect, God always keeps his word. God always keeps his word. And Jesus, this covenantal king, is a testimony to that truth. 42 generations had passed since God made that covenant with Abraham. And at times it seemed dark. At times God's voice went silent. But God never forgot his promise to his people. Our God will always keep his word. For unto Abraham a child is born and a son is given. For unto David a child is born and a son is given. And for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And church, we long for that peace in this world. And Jesus is a living, breathing testimony that God has not forgotten his promises. Therefore, no matter what happens, we have hope. See, God has also promised that this king will come again. And we can look at the covenantal king and see that though generations pass, God does not forget his word. And though generations have passed since Jesus ascended, we can trust that God will keep his word and he will return again. So Jesus is the legal king. Jesus is the covenantal king. But next I want you to see that Jesus is the redemptive king. Jesus is the redemptive king. And we see this truth again through four disruptions to the pattern. There in verse 3 and verses 5 and 6, there are four disruptions to the pattern. Look at Matthew 1 verse 3. It says, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Aram. Verses 5 and 6. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. And King David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Did you catch the disruption to the pattern there? Notice the names of some women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Now again, 
If the other disruptions didn't cause the people to pause and reflect on what in the world Matthew is doing, this one would have caused them to pause and stop. Because it was not common to put women into a genealogy. But even more, not only did Matthew include women, Matthew included four Gentiles into the lineage of Jesus. Why in the world would he do that? It seems to me that you're running a great risk there if you're trying to convince Jews that Jesus has the right to be your king and in his lineage you go and step outside of the bounds of Jewish norms and put in a bunch of Gentile women. Well, Matthew wants us to consider something. Matthew wanted the Jews to consider something that in the lineage of this king there are not only Jewish men present. There are women and there are Gentiles. And why does this matter? Because this is pointing us to the fact that this king is a king who will redeem. This king is one who before his throne, people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will bow. In this kingdom, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, this is a king who will redeem. And hear me, this is This is redemption that's not based on a person's background. It's not based on their gender. It's not based on their ethnicity. It's not based on their past. This king's redemption is based on his own character and his covenantal love for his creation. This king will redeem a multi-ethnic, multi-gendered, multi-generational, multicultural people to himself. He will save them all because he is the king who redeems. And how will he do this? You see, the Jews were looking for a king who would redeem by a sword with an army by waging war. No. This king would raise no sword at this time. He would bring no army. He would wage no physical war. How would he save? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, that's God, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is our king, a king who saves. You see, the gospel is not merely a story of a king coming. The gospel is a story of a king saving of a king redeeming. And brothers and sisters, we need that redemption because the Scripture tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, we are aliens and we are separated from the covenant of God. We are separated from the goodness of God and we by nature deserve wrath and punishment for all time. And yet, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us and in our place condemned He stood and Jesus died on a cross to redeem, to save, to reconcile a people unto himself. So who is this king born in Bethlehem? He is the legal king. He is the covenantal king. He is the redemptive king. And finally, 
Lastly, what I want you to see, what Matthew is forcing us to consider is that Jesus is the divine king. Jesus is the divine king. You see, there's another disruption in the genealogy. And it almost got me. I almost missed it. Because you can't see it in the English translation. But let me, let me break it down for you. So in each of those, these instances, you know I try to stay away from Greek stuff, but sometimes you just can't get past the Greek stuff, right? I mean, this changes the text. So in each of the instances when it says that someone fathered something, Right, So Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah. All of the times that it used that word fathered, the Greek word there is ganao. Ganao is not a quiz. You don't need to write it down. But what's interesting is that when it says there in verse 16, Mary who gave birth. It uses the same word for gave birth as it does all the other fathered. So in essence, it could say, which probably why they didn't translate it this way, because it would be weird without someone explaining it to it, was that Mary fathered Jesus. But here's where it gets interesting. Here's the disruption. Because that just seems like it's continuing the pattern, but there's a disruption in the text. All of the usage of the word ganao, Mary included, all of them, they're in the past tense, and all of them are in the active voice, meaning that they are the ones acting. So Abraham is acting in fathering Isaac. Isaac is active in fathering Jacob. They're all in the active voice except for one time. And it's when it says give birth. That is ganaho in the passive tense. It's in the passive voice. Which means Mary is not the primary one doing the action when it comes to the birth of Jesus. So then the question becomes, who is? Because Joseph didn't father Jesus. And Mary is passive. See, what Matthew wants them to pick up on, what we are left with is the conclusion that this child is somehow unique that this child is not fathered by Joseph and Mary. They're not the primary ones acting. And so we are left with a different father. We're left with God the Father. And you see, the small nuance holds within it the greatest truth. That this king, born in a stable in a little town called Bethlehem, is not merely a man. That this child born in Bethlehem is divine. He is God in flesh. Again, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God sent His Son, the fully God, fully man, incarnate Word, became flesh. This is no ordinary King. This is the divine King. So try to picture it with me. 
So when Mary and Joseph held their newborn baby in their arms and they said what so many of us who are parents have said, looking at their child, he's perfect. When they said that for the first time in history, those words failed to capture the glory of the baby that they were holding. Because this baby was the legal king. This baby was the covenantal king. This baby was the redemptive king. This baby was God in flesh. This baby was the king the wise men sought when they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This baby would one day enter Jerusalem in his triumphant entrance in Matthew 21 and fulfill the prophecy, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. This king would affirm his kingship in Matthew 27, 11, when asked by the governor, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus would say, you have said so. This king would be crowned in this life, not with gold or jewels, but with a crown of thorns. And though mocking in John 19, Pilate would write the prophetic words in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, and he nailed them to a cross, and they echoed through eternity that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But this king would also be crowned in the heavens. As God himself declares to the Son, your throne, God, is forever and ever. Church, this king came not to, ser- to be served, but to serve, to offer himself as a sacrifice for our, ki- for our sins. And this king, this is the king we worship on Christmas. This is the king we love. And this king will be our king for all eternity. And so what do we do with all this? As we come closer to Christmas morning and the distraction of presence is ever more in our minds, what do we do with this king? Well, first, brothers and sisters, the truth of who this king is should drive us to acknowledge him as king. You see, when we talk about the kingship of Jesus, we're, just not, we're not just talking about a theological idea. We're not talking about a mental concept. The reality of the kingship of Jesus demands our life, our all. If he is king, then he is our king. And so we have to recognize him as such. Because let's be honest, brothers and sisters, not a one of us does a great job of playing king of our own lives. But second, it should drive us to worship the king. We worship this king who is the legal king, who is the covenantal king, who is the redemptive king, who is the divine king with all that we are, with everything that is in us. We declare his majesty and his praise and his glory and his honor because no one else is worthy like this king. It should also drive us to love this king. To love this king. And for those of us who are in Jesus, we are privileged to love him because he has first loved us. So my prayer is that the expression of our hearts and our lives would be an overflow of love and adoration for this great king. But here's the last thing we should do with this reality of who this king is. In this king, We find hope and joy from this moment for all moments to come. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. 
let earth receive her king. Heavenly Father, God, we, we stand in awe of who you are. We, we stand in awe of what you and you alone accomplished by sending your son to die on the cross in the place of sinners, to raise from the dead, and now to sit at your right hand. God, you, you did all of this. And God, we praise you. We praise you that we have a king who doesn't sit in a White House, who doesn't sit in a governor's mansion, who doesn't sit on a throne made by human hands. But we have a king who is the king eternal, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, and, and of his dominion there will be no end. And so God, I pray that today, that this season, as we reflect on the birth of Jesus, that we would reflect on the king who has come, the king who has the right to rule, the king who fulfills all your promises, the king who saves people from every background and every culture and every ethnicity. And we would praise the king who is God. God, set our hearts ablaze in love for you fact that you would even step into our story, that God would, would come in flesh and, and take on our sin, our burden. God, sometimes it's just too much to comprehend. But the Bible says that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. So God, help us to appreciate the greatest gift we could ever receive salvation and freedom and redemption because of our king help us to genuinely live lives that declare our joy and our hope in you because the king has come and he's coming again it's in jesus name we pray amen